really don't know what's crazier. The video or your response? <laughs> I tell you, I was watching, I know what I thought. Isn't that the way many of us started with Christ? Trying to figure out those steps and, uh, and just sort of trying to figure out what does it mean to really walk with God? I mean, I don't know about you, but as I was watching, I thought just like the character in the, in the video, I found myself trying to figure out how to take those steps and doing some crazy things in the journey. And I think we all do. That's why we need each other. And, and that's why Paul wrote the book of Romans. He, he wanted not just those in Rome, but for all of us to understand, what's it mean really to be a follower of God? What's it mean to go back to the basics? And going back to the basics is something that we as believers should do on a regular basis because we want to make sure that we don't drift from our, from our spiritual foundation, from what we would say is Orthodox Christianity, biblical Christianity. And so we've been looking through the first eight chapters of Romans. We're going to finish up the last uh, a few verses here in, in chapter 3 and in the, uh, chapter 4. And, and Paul does something really spectacular. He builds off of what he shared last week in his writing that we looked at. And that is how important it is that we rest in the fact that we're saved, that we're justified by faith alone. That, that we understand now, because Paul spent a good deal of time uh, leading us through the bad, bad news, that we're all in this predicament. That because of sin, that, that the, the wage of it, what we've worked really hard to earn, right, is death. It, it doesn't matter if you feel like you're, you're, you, you were raised in a church or whether you consider yourself a moral person or whether you just really know you have quite a story. We're all in the same predicament. And that's bad, bad news. But Paul takes us to this good, good news. He says, but here's the good news. Our salvation isn't based on works. It's not on anything we could do, and, and so many people try, and, and, and dare I say, some people think you come to Christ in faith and then somehow have to work your way to keep it, and, and what Paul says, no, no, it's from faith from beginning to end, that, that Jesus has done the work. Now, we're going to get into sanctification, which can be a messy process because of us uh, in just about a week, but he, he wants to venture us into it by nailing down this understanding that there's nothing but Christ. Nothing but Christ. No one but Christ who can actually make us right with God. That, that, that when we think of salvation, that the basis of our salvation is, is purely on, on Jesus' finished work on the cross. Jesus died for our sins. But we worship a risen Savior who is resurrected for our salvation. But the instrument, if you will, of, of, our, of our salvation is faith, that we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul takes us a little further into this understanding. He wants to nail it down for us this week. And so look with me at Romans 3.27. We'll start there as we work our way through the end of chapter 3 and through chapter 4. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. But what, by, by what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Some implications of, uh, of justification by faith and salvation by faith. The first is, is that people saved by faith have nothing to boast about. Except for Jesus. Like we can't boast in ourselves because we didn't do the work. And so 
You know, I think sometimes it's so easy as believers who are walking with Jesus to look at the rest of the world and sort of boast as if we've done something, right? I had a friend one time who was so frustrated with his sister, he goes, why isn't she smart enough to become a believer? He just loved her, you know what I'm saying? I mean, he just loved her, but it came out like that. And I said, you don't think you came to Jesus because you're smart, do you? Come on now. So what do you mean? I said, no, 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 Jesus died. He did all the work. He drew you to him. And yeah, you by faith received him. But those of us in this room who follow Christ, it's not because we're smarter than those who don't. It's because we bowed our knee. Because we believed in the truth. So we don't boast. We don't boast only in Jesus. The believer is not justified by doing what the law required. We, we weren't able to, to do that work. We, we, we fell short. And justification by faith does fulfill the law, however, but it does it through Jesus Christ. In other words, the payment of the law had to be made, had to be followed in order, in order for the price of our sin to be paid. But the only one who could do it was Jesus himself. And so the law has been fulfilled in our lives who are believers, but not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. So what is Paul about to do in chapter 4? He's to give us an exhibit in this court case. So an exhibit in a court case is much like evidence. I mean, it's up for objections and these type of things. But what Paul does as the, as the lawyer to, of the plaintiff, God, is he sort of comes and he stands up for God's people, you and I who are in Christ, and he wants us to understand exactly where our salvation comes from, what it's what the instrument of our salvation is. He wants to make sure before we move on to what it means to become like Jesus, we know what it means to truly be in Jesus. And so look at what he writes in chapter 4, starting at verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. I want you to just camp there for a minute, because we don't want to read over that very important hinge verse in Romans. That's right here where it says, Scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Keep that in the back of your mind. Verse 4. Now that the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Isn't that the truth? I mean, you may be thankful for your job, but hopefully when your employer gives you the check, you, you work for that money, right? Come on now. Getting awful quiet with me. Have you not worked in a while? But come on, you work for that money, right? You, it's what's due to you. Catch verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Interesting. So we work and something's counted to us as righteousness. But something about faith also, I mean, we work and we receive something that we've earned. Something about faith allows something to be counted to us as well. But what we find is that Abraham was not declared righteous on account of any good behavior. You may ask the question, now why is Paul using Abraham as an example? Because Abraham is like the father of the chosen people. And we find that really his, the blessings and promises that God promised to Abraham means that we who are in Christ are also part of that promise. We're children of promise to Abraham. Also, it's interesting, but by the time of Jesus, Jews thought that Abraham was a perfect person. They must not have read Genesis in a while. Because when you read Genesis, you find that Abraham was a man of profound faith, but very significant flaws. He was not a perfect person. There are no perfect people except for Jesus himself. 
But Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was credited to him as righteousness. Works were not counted or credited as righteousness. His faith was. Consider this. If we come to God on any other basis other than faith, it would mean that God owes us something. If we could work so hard, then, then our work, right, he would, he would owe us this, but we can't do that. All God owes is the wage of sin, which is death. But the basis of salvation by grace is the finished work of Jesus Christ. The instrument is our faith. Nothing else works. The term counted or credited comes from the language of, of accounting or bookkeeping. And the faith that Abraham brought to God is equivalent in value to righteousness. Think about that for a minute. The faith that Abraham brought to God is equivalent in value as righteousness. Therefore, a person who places their faith in God is credited or receives righteousness. Now stick with me. I know we're deep going into the weeds here, but there's freedom in these words. A person must first understand and admit that they're a sinner. That's the problem. But they also then must also accept that Jesus is the solution. John testifies in his gospel, John 3, 36, first part of that verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Believe in faith, by the way, are, are, are cousin words. They're, they're they're actually, in the Greek, the, the somewhat the same word. This idea, those who have faith in the Son of God will be saved. Then we read in Romans 4, 6, and 8. This this change. He's talking about Abraham, but he wants to make sure that they understand this wasn't just for Abraham. So he talks about King David, who was also looked upon as, as the greatest king of all of Israel. Romans 4, 6 through 8. Just as David also speaks as a blessing, the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. This is, these are the words of David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So Paul's saying, like Abraham, David enjoyed forgiveness by faith, not works. This is from Psalm 32, it's in, in, and David's given this expression of thanksgiving, this, this, this freedom that comes through repentance and asking for forgiveness. And, and again, Paul uses David as an example to say, it's not just true of Abraham, it was also true of, of David. And what sins do we know that David committed? I mean, when we think of the story of David, right? He, he, he what? He... He lusted after another man's wife, Bathsheba. He didn't just lust after, he had an adulterous relationship with her. And then to cover up the relationship, he has her husband killed. That's pretty bad. Come on now. I mean, that's pretty bad. And, and, and he, had been, he had done all these things. And by the way, when you read his story, he'd done more. Like, that's not just all of it. That, by the way, aren't you thankful that you're not in Scripture with all your sins is laying bare before people? I've often said I'm glad it wasn't like Craig and Krista, the first couple, and people say you're either in Jesus or in Craig. So, I, you know, before we cast stones at our predecessors, we were all in the same boat. But think of David for a minute. There's a question that, uh, that people ask. I've asked it. How much sin will God forgive? What type of sin will God forgive? The answer is clear, isn't it? God forgives any and all sin confessed in faith. 
So you may be sitting here this morning and saying, I have a story. Do you have a story like David's? You might. You might. You might be watching online or live streaming or at a Hopewell campus. You may have a story close to that. Maybe not. The truth of the matter is it doesn't really matter. We all have a story. We all fall short. And if you want to know what sin God forgives, it's any sin brought to him for forgiveness. It's all sin as we come to relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Simply put, God forgives those who ask and and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, his death and his resurrection. We see here again this accounting language. It's, It's a ledger or a balance sheet. And I love how John Stott explains it. It's just so brilliant. This is what he writes. He says, justification involves a double counting, crediting, and reckoning. On the one hand, negatively, God will never count our sins against us. How many of you think that's good news? On the other hand, positively, God credits our account with righteousness as a free gift by faith, altogether apart from works. How many of you think that's good news? So he's he's not going to give us what we earned. He's going to give us what Christ earned for us. And the instrument of this amazing transaction is simply faith. To believe. Faith is the instrument that allows the ledger sheet to be reconciled. And then Paul returns to Abraham, verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness they had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the father that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I've actually never said circumcised that much in all my life. (laughs) A lot there. Let's unpack it. Abraham, let's just boil it down. Abraham was not declared righteous on account of a religious ceremony. This is so important. Circumcision was an outward sign of an inward righteousness. It was a covenant sign if you will. But the Jews had fallen into the mindset that they were right with God simply by being circumcised. And Paul wants to address that, and I think he wants to address the legalism in all of us without minimizing the ceremony. Sacraments are important. So he doesn't want to minimize the sacraments, but he wants to put them in their proper perspective, if you will. Think about what's happening here. This was a great controversy in the early church. The very first church, like not like hundreds of years later, like a decade or so later, three decades later, uh, they were really battling whether or not a Gentile could become a Christian without first becoming circumcised. Now, any of us who were older men understand why that would be a dilemma. Come on now. And interesting enough, it had always been a dilemma in the Jewish faith. In fact, there were those who would come from the Gentile portion of the world, as they saw them, someone who wasn't born a Jew, hadn't been circumcised, and they would become a Jew. In order to become a full Jew, you had to be circumcised. So guess there was a whole group of people who were called God-fearers. Do you know who God-fearers were? 
Those who lived like Jews but weren't about to be circumcised. Interesting. And so Acts chapter 15, there's this great debate among the church. You know what they said? No, you don't need to be circumcised to be Christian. But that was a covenantal sign between a chosen people, but now there's, there's freedom in Christ, so we no longer need to do that. What's the modern implication of that? Well, there are those who think that, man, if, if I don't get baptized, I'm not saved. Or if I don't take communion, my sins from last night will not be forgiven. Now, by the way, if you're resting on baptism or communion for your salvation, you're in big trouble because they don't save us at all. But they are a sign of salvation, aren't they? They're a sign of obedience. So someone's asked me many times, do I have to take communion to be a Christian? I go, no, you just have to take communion to be the obedient one. Come on now. Do I have to be baptized to be a Christian? Absolutely not, just to be an obedient one. So if you want to walk in disobedient and wrestle with God, go for it. That's between you and him, not me and you, right? But can I let you know a little secret? He's going to win. He's going to win. You can't walk right with God without walking, this is going to sound so simple, right with God. And so Paul's getting at that. He's saying, listen, these ceremonies have no salvation power, but it's not to mean they're meaningless. Right, church? There's great meaning in baptism. There's great meaning in child dedication. There's great meaning in communion. Francis Schaeffer liked to explain it this way. He said, we could think of the promises of God as a solid ring. So the promises of God, a solid ring. If I stand beside this ring, I become a solid ring myself with no place for the two rings to be joined together. So you have God's promises as a ring and you have your life as a ring. How am I as the second ring, separate ring, to, to enter into the ring of God's promises? No magic trick's going to do it. The answer is I need a third ring, he writes to link my ring with the ring of God's promises. You have God's promises, you have us, and that third ring is faith. But faith connects us to the promises of God. And then Paul writes in verse 13, for the promises to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. This is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who say, shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So the part of what Paul wants to deal with is this legalism of, 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 of sort of these sacraments, or, or for them these rituals, but he also wants to talk about the legalism of law-keeping. And he says, Abraham was not declared righteous by keeping rules. Now, by the way, how do we know this? Well, just like circumcision, we know that Abraham was counted as righteous some 15 to 25 years before he was circumcised. So Paul says it couldn't have been the circumcision because he was credited as righteous before he was circumcised. Well, he was also credited as righteous 500 years before the law was given to Moses. So there was no written law. I mean, he knew good and bad. I mean, there was this cultural understanding. Certainly there was this internal understanding of some of those things. 
But, but he didn't have the law of Moses. I mean, there was, the written word was non-existent. It was all verbal in the time of Abraham. When God called Abraham out of his land and by faith Abraham went, he didn't just, he followed the God that he come to know and turned his back on the gods that his people had been following. It's an amazing thing. There were no chosen people. When Abraham left, God started a chosen people, people who did not exist, he chose, and you go, why did he choose them? I love this. He tells us later, because they weren't anybody. So that they couldn't boast. He said, I made a people who weren't a people, because if I had chosen people, they would have thought they were special. So I made a people out of no people so that they knew they weren't, except because of me. No different than the church today, right? We're no better than anyone else. We just know the God who is. There's power in that understanding. There's freedom in that understanding. Stott wrote, he said, the fixed point is that God is gracious and that salvation originates in his sheer grace alone, his deep love for us. But in order that this may be so, our human response can only be faith. The grace gives and faith takes. Faith's exclusive function is humbly to receive the grace offered to us. So, so we don't boast in our faith. Faith is a humble act. It's a recognition that we understand the bad, bad news so much that what else could we do but respond to God's kindness by faith and say, I want to be a part of the good, good news. I want to know him. I want to walk with him. I want to serve him. Then Paul continues, verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was nearly 100 years old. That could get me in trouble, but... And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, that could get you in more trouble. No unbelief made him no unbelief made him waver concerning did not make him waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. What's being said here? God comes and says, "I'm going to make you the father of many nations." And Abraham thinks, hmm, that's interesting because I'm 100 years old. That's really the wrong time to start this fathering thing. And by the way, my wife isn't able to have children. Why does God choose people like that? Because when he does it, there's no questioning who did it. God takes a 100-year-old man, a barren wife, and he makes a, makes a nation out of them. I don't know about you, but that, that just charges my battery. To think about how powerful our God is. When we meet those situations that we think there's just no way that God can do something here, I go, you take a 100-year-old man and a barren woman and make a nation out of them, I'm sure he can get me through this. See, Abraham was a man of faith, and that, that's what made all the difference. I love this definition of faith. Faith is waiting for reality to catch up with what we know to be true. God said it, it's true. I'm just waiting for things to catch up to it. Justifying faith is a faith that looks at the problem and believes upon God as the solution. The problem Abraham faced, no offspring. 
was answered by God against hope, by the way. What's that mean? Against human reasoning. Humanly speaking, this was impossible. Spiritually speaking, all things are possible with God. This is how justifying faith works. There's no human-based solution to the problem of sin. But, but when we look upon God, we know he's the solution. Our, our faith in God releases God's righteousness in our life. Then we read verses 23 and, and 25 as we wrap up our passage for this morning. It says, but the, but the words, it was counted to him, catch this. So stick with me. What has Paul said? Faith came to Abraham, right? That, that Abraham had this faith. And because he had this faith in God, it was counted to him as righteousness. David, done all these despicable things. How many of you would say that's a bad list that David had? Come on now, if you don't, please let me know because I don't want to be around you. There's a bad list, right? Bad list, bad list. But it was counted to him as righteousness because David had faith. Catch this. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. What's Paul done? True with Abraham, true with David, true with us. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abraham's example is meant for us to follow. That when we come to to God in faith, he credits us with righteousness. That's why when you look at Scripture, those who, who have yet to come to the faith in, in Christ, through Christ, they're called sinners. But when we come to faith in Christ, that's why he calls us saints. Not because our actions have changed yet, but because our position has. Because the very righteousness of Christ has been credited into our account. Like our bank account was more than empty, we were indebted, right? Right? Like he had negative figures to the infinite degree. And when we came to Christ, the bank account was infinitely filled with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ in our life. Okay, thank you. I just want to make sure we're on the same page because I have another service and they want to get to lunch too. So. so Jesus was crucified for our sins and was resurrected for our salvation. And this, this is a fantastic reality. And I, I stress the term reality because it's real, it's authentic. It's a real God. It's a real work. It's a real salvation. And I like how Francis Schaeffer sort of writes this because he, he wants us to understand that the reality, that our faith in the reality of these things is so important. He writes, the philosopher Blaise Pascal suggested that belief in God was a good bet because if it's not true, you haven't lost anything. And if it is true, you go to heaven. That sounds good, but look what Schaefer writes. But if this is all you believe, you don't go to heaven. Christian faith is not a wager or a magic formula or saying the right words. It isn't like wearing a rabbit's foot around your neck. Christian faith is believing in the God who really exists. God is real. The work Christ did on the cross is real. His resurrection was real. We worship a living God who we can come to and by faith receive a real salvation. But the first fruits are felt today. 
And when Jesus returns and we see him face to face, the full rewards will be known in paradise. And this is the message of the gospel. But you can't get in because of ritual. You can't get in by following the law. You can't get in by any of these things. But like Abraham, we can be God's children by faith. Like David, we can become God's children by faith. Jesus was crucified for our sins and resurrected for our salvation. There's a part of the Lord's Prayer that says, forgive us our debts. And indeed in Christ, our debts have not just been forgiven, but paid in full. We're free. Free to live in Christ. Free to hold our head up high. Not boasting in ourselves, but boasting in our Heavenly Father who has our back. Willing to allow the resources of heaven to flow through our lives so that not only are we blessed, but others benefit from the lives we live in. God calls us to, to believe by faith to receive, right? And then to walk in that faith. Where do you find yourself this morning? Have you taken that step of believing and receiving? If not, maybe in the quietness of your heart, even this morning, you say yes to Jesus. Begin that walk. It's not about what you have or haven't done except by placing faith in Jesus. That's what brings salvation. And believers, listen to me this morning. As you came to Christ in faith, don't live feeling as if now you're condemned. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We'll get there in a few weeks. You're free. As you came to Christ in faith, trusting and believing in the good Father God, thank you so much for these life-giving words. These words, Lord God, that tear down the bondage of legalism, these words that tear down the bondage of just self-deprivating ourselves, Lord God, and, and, and allowing the words of others and the enemy to make us feel like there's no hope. Lord, you're our living you're our sure thing. You're our living God. And so, Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning and on this campus or maybe watching through live stream online at the Hopewell campus who's yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, that they would rest in the basis of our salvation, which is Christ alone, his finished work on the cross. He died for our sins, was resurrected for our salvation. The instrument of that salvation is our faith. They've placed their faith in you. And Lord, for those of us who have, may we continue to understand, we continue to walk in faith. <laughs> it's not just about becoming saved and getting that notch and then you saying, now go do life. I'll see you later. <laughs> no, you call us to walk with you. Allow your spirit to, to perfect us, to make us more and more like Jesus. So we can, Lord God, glorify you that we can be blessed and benefit others. That, Lord, as we gather here week after week and put your glory on display, that as we scatter throughout this region, that we would take your love and your message to those who have yet to hear and yet to respond. And, and, and Lord, that we would have a burden for their, their eternity. Designed with they too, which is coming to knowledge, salvation in you. That they would step out.
We're not here because we're smarter than anyone. We're here just because we humbly bowed our knee to the great God you are. We pray that many, many others in our region will do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.